If you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, uh, we'll be in there this morning. And, and I want to give you the key truth as you're turning there. It's God's image is displayed in us according to his law as revealed by Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. God's image is displayed in us according to his law as revealed by Christ Jesus. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning, this is Romans 2, 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, straight away, we need to answer a question, and I want you to be careful that you don't get so tangled up in thinking this question through that you miss the sermon, but it is something you need to wrestle with. And I think it's something you need to sit with because you, all of us have been influenced to think about this phrase in a particular way. So what do you think when you hear God's law? See, what would you, how would you feel if I, if I suddenly said, all right, for the next 12 weeks, we're just going to do a sermon series on God's law. How many of you would get excited? Pei Chung, which is fantastic. We got one. One person got excited. No. And so, so think about that for a second. We, when we hear that, there's something that goes on in us that, that, that kind of almost wants to back away, that thinks that if you're going to talk about God's law, there's no way you're going to talk about mercy and grace. Is God's law not merciful and gracious in its clarity uh, as to how we could relate to him and relate to our neighbor? Right? And so think about that, that, that there are ways in which Satan has taken one of the key things in Scripture and so distorted and twisted it that when we hear God's law, we revolt or we are revolved. What's interesting is that's the same problem that the kings and leaders of the earth have in Psalm chapter 2, if you remember. They see God's law as restricting. For some of you, that's what you hear. When you hear God's law, all you can think of is now what you can't do. Now what you, that God just, he is afraid there's going to be somebody who has fun somewhere and he's got to put a stop to it. And he does it through his law. That is not what he does. That is not where the law originated. That's not the purpose of the law in any way, shape, or form. But some of you, when you hear God's law, you get excited. Finally, we're going to separate the wheat from the chaff, the real from the fake. And we can measure this out now. Behold my glory. Is that a good way to think about God's law? That's how the Pharisees often use the law, if you remember, right? And so we don't want either one of those ditches. We want to be biblical in how we understand it. Now, let me identify a key issue straight away that we have to understand is that every time the word law is used, it does not refer to the same thing. 
We're actually going to see that in one of the passages here. Sometimes it refers specifically to the law that was given to Moses at Sinai, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it's a reference to ceremonial law, which would be the, the things that were done that pointed forward to Jesus in the temple. Sometimes it refers to those 667 laws, the apodictic law, where you couldn't eat shrimp or wear a polyester shirt. I don't think they had polyester back then. But praise be to God, we can now eat shrimp and wear polyester. And sometimes it refers to the thing that's written on the hearts of the people that is evidence of the image of God. So we have to, anytime we see the word, we got to do a little work, make sure the context to understand the thing it's being referred to. But let me help you out with something that's even more important. Every time that you read the word law, what you should do is say to yourself, the character of God displayed. In every one of those different circumstances, the, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ceremonial law, the apodictic law, the, uh, the law written on our hearts, every single one of those points not to the creature, but to the creator. It's a way in which his character is displayed. It even points to Jesus as well. And so if we could get to a place where when we hear God's law, that what we would do is begin to look for, okay, how's this going to exalt God? And even take a step further, because what exalts God most visibly but Jesus? Is Jesus not the display of the righteousness of God in this world, his characteristics? So the law is not meant to be a blunt force instrument to tell us who we are not. It is a, is a means of grace to help us understand who we are and who we ought be. And so may that be a gift to us. And the other thing you've got to think about is not only what you hear when you hear God's law, but what has most influenced you. Is it scripture? Or is it the misappropriation of God's law by some church leader or some denomination or some book you read or some understanding that ends up being a lot more uh, bad reading in a Judaistic sense than actual biblical reading in terms of Christ? This is what we have to wrestle with because all of us have a distortion on this issue of some kind. And as the project is for us here, we want to teach you how to think, not just what to think, right? So as we turn to the text, remember that Paul is slowly but surely taking away all the excuses that the Gentiles or the Jews would have for saying they don't really need Jesus in the same way, right? That's chapters one through three, brick by brick. Paul is beautifully, rhetorically taking away anything that anybody could rise up and say, this isn't fair, or I'm better than them. That's really important as we read these things, because again, we gotta, so what does that mean that we as the listeners of these chapters of God's word, what does that mean we got to be looking for? You would do well to look for the excuses, the yeah buts where you try to differentiate and separate yourself based on your need for Jesus. No, the need for Jesus is absolutely universal. It is the same in every heart, every culture, every nationality, every race, every circumstance, every sex, every single person has the same need. Now here, he's specifically doing work on the Jewish listeners there at the church in Rome. So with that in mind, let's turn back to the text 
remembering that he's just said there's no partiality in God. Now, this is really important. If there's no partiality in God, then is there anything that you can bring to him and do that will tip the scale? If I'm impartial, can you influence me in one way or another? No. That's the definition of impartiality. And so straight away, if that is who God is, anything that we would try to use to say, well, this isn't fair, or I, I stand out from everybody else, well, that's, that's false. So he now turns to the law, and he's going to deal with the law for the next uh, or the rest of chapter two before he gets to chapter three and levels the ground in front of the cross for everyone. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. So what did he just do? Who could have claimed, well, this isn't fair. We didn't know. He's already told the Gentiles they're without excuse. He's just making sure one more time that lest they begin to kind of think, well, if we didn't know, then it doesn't count. No, they did know. They knew from the order of creation that they were the created thing. There, there should have been a humility in them that was displayed because of the image of God born in them. There was an arrogance in them in that they thought they could make their own gods and, and choose to have those gods say what they wanted. But what was interesting is they picked stuff that was less than them and remember what it did to them. It rendered them less than human. So straight away, he's just making sure, let me just take that brick real quick. And just in case y'all want to cry out, this isn't fair, or even the Jews speak up and say, see, we are better than them because you gave us a law that allowed for us to be saved. How can they be saved without the law? Because he's also going to get to, they can also be saved without the law, right? It's not just that they perish. And it's interesting that he would start there because the Jews would have, would have, it would have set their, their teeth on a certain edge, which is Paul's doing a lot of decentering here. And if you are not decentered by some of what Romans is saying, you may not be paying attention. And so he goes on, just to make sure everybody understands. He says, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So what's the di what difference does the law make in terms of judgment? Zero. None. If you sin, the law itself cannot save you. Right? If you break the law, whether you knew it or you didn't, it, you, it can't save you. So this is why the, 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 we have to recognize if you, when you hear God's law, think it's an instrument of salvation, you are unbiblical in your thinking. You are actually suppressing the truth of God. And you may say, well, wait a minute now. I thought in the Bible it said that if you couldn't live up to the standard of the law, then, then you couldn't be saved. Well, but what did he just say here? See, it was the Jews who twisted it to try to make it an instrument of salvation. It was they who were constantly trying to say, this makes us better than them. This is a way we can keep score. This is the devastating use of the law. This is a law that will kill you. You try to use the law to save you, and all it's going to do is lay you low and show you your need for a savior, hopefully before judgment. Which you may say, well, that, that don't sound too hot. No, but that's God's clarity in his law. That's his character being displayed in and through these things. But he goes on. He takes another brick. He says, 
For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. The next brick he took from them is often the Jews would, and this is interesting because it sounds a lot like our culture. It's just a different week system. But from Sunday to Friday before the sun would go down, they would live any kind of way they wanted to. And then what they would do is use the Shabbat Sabbath to try to approach God and be forgiven for all that craziness so they could, could, could while out and get crunk the next week. And so, and so they were using God as a cosmic candy machine to live any way they wanted. It was a commodified relationship. See, they took the ceremonial law and instead of having it point to Jesus, they made it point to them. They took the things that Jesus, that God said to do and not do in his law, and they used it instead of it pointing to him, his glory, his goodness, and being a hospitable invitation to the surrounding nations. They instead used it to say, this is why we're better than you. And as long as they thought they kept God appeased from Friday night sundown through Saturday, which is the Shabbat Sabbath, then they thought they could also worship Baal. God, we gave you your pittance. Why are you not satisfied? This is some of the argument in the minor prophets. Right? The people act almost incredulous. Bro, we, 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 we gave you, we, we did the little doves and, and we did the lambs and you know, we did all that. What more do you want from us? Well, what more does God want from us? Because I think we have a similar problem. <laughs> Some of us see worship and religious activities and means of grace in much the same way, do we not? That as long as I give the Lord his pittance, I showed up, I, I, I tithe. I might even serve in children's ministry with those vipers and diapers. That's sacrifice, is it not? I don't really, just let me pause here, moms. I don't really think your children are vipers and diapers. That was just a sarcasm. But, but let's be careful. How many of us think that what God is most concerned with is our happiness, and as long as we, we pay him his pittance, we can go do what we want as a law unto ourselves? That how we live in the week doesn't matter. We sat through your sermon, Cameron. What more do you want from us? We suffered those songs that we don't hardly know. And, and, and what more do you want from us? We gave. Come on now. And so we want to be careful that we ourselves don't just think, as long as I've heard it, Long as I've endured it, long as I've suffered it, isn't that enough, O Lord? When he wants ambassadors of reconciliation, instruments in his redemptive hands, who, for the life of the world, go out and display his character in the world, which is what the law does, right? Remember, the law can be summed up in these two things. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Those are the words of Christ. Now, if you know the, the, the Ten Commandments, the first three are the loving of the Lord our God. Then the last six are the loving of our neighbor. And that keeping of the Sabbath helps us to do both of those things well, right? It is a good thing to get recharged to go back out into the world. Next Sunday, it's going to be very important for me and Jonathan and Chris Blackman and Wes Calton to be filled up 
as we will launch off at, into the wilds of St. Louis to go to General Assembly and serve as representatives of this church and the presbytery. If you're keeping up with what's going on at all, it's going to be interesting. And you need to pray for us that more than anything, we would not grow cynical in seeking to do good. That we would be ambassadors of reconciliation, even amidst brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ who will be there. And so you can't just be a hero of the law. It's not a commodified relationship. You're not throwing God his little bit and then asking him to leave you alone. That is oftentimes what Jews in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament and Gentiles did it too. We do it too, right? So one of the things you want to be asking the Spirit to show you is where are you treating God in a commodified way that you think that you have earned the right to do some things by virtue of your suffering or by virtue of your sacrifice or by virtue of your good deeds. That's not how it works. He goes on to say, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they did not have the law. Wait a minute now. You got to be thinking that the Jews in the crowd would have been going, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? Then what is the good of the law? Well, the good of the law, the intent of the law, as you remember, remember when it was given. This is where we've got to be students of redemptive history. We've got to be able to put these things together in our mind. Where does the law actually first show up as a systematized, codified thing in the Old Testament? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Uh, no, actually. That was a good, it, it's it, kind of. But systematized, codified thing. It's not until Exodus 20, Sinai, right? What had happened prior to that? Well, the people of God, Israel, who by the way, have you ever thought about, I, I think it's a good idea to form a nation while in slavery with no power, no king, no land, no nothing. See, they'd been 400 years under Egypt's reign. It hadn't been bad the entire time, but it progressively got worse as Pharaoh, who thought himself God, grew jealous of the Lord our God because of how he blessed his people. And Pharaoh felt like he was losing control. And so that arrogant Moses comes and says, hey, you need to set my people free or some stuff's going to start happening around here and you ain't going to like it. And if you remember, the Lord sets his people free, but for what purpose? To worship him in his presence according to what? His law. Now, that means it's a relational document. That's, it's not intended to drive them from him. It's intended to help them come to him for he is holy. And it was to help them relate to one another because they had just been brought out of slavery. Think of how crazy it would be for a people who'd been in slavery to start killing one another. Stealing each other's wives. Now, that's also, it would be crazy because look at how the Lord had blessed them. When the Lord has given you all that he has given and provided all that you've given, why do you need to take from your neighbor? Go ask God and see what he'll provide. And receive the good from his hand because he is sovereign and wiser than you. Why do you think it's up to you to step outside of what he's provided, the covenants that he's made, the promises he's given? Think of how crazy that would be. And yet, what did they do? 
exactly that, even though he had made it clear how it was they were to relate to each other and to relate to him. You see, law precedes relationship. He had chosen them and then gives them the clarity of the law so as to be a light to the nations. Would you come to this church if you heard that, hey, you're likely to get murdered? Those folks, they don't care. Would you come to this church if you knew that every week I was going to lie to you? Would you come to this church if you knew, man, there's, there's folks on the prowl trying to steal spouses up in there? Would you come to this church if you knew that, that our youth group would steal your cars out of the parking lot and take a joy ride because, hey, your stuff's our stuff and we're all in this together? No, you wouldn't. So see, there is a sense in which our keeping of the law is hospitable to those who would be in our midst. It is a call to, this is the kind of people you'd want to be around. It's not to save them. They had already been delivered. It was for them to now live as the people of God and display his glory in a world that so desperately needed it, right? This is the point of the law, not to save them. And so... Here he is saying that these Gentiles could actually keep a law they'd never heard. How? Because they bear the image of God. Now the next verse is very important because it will invoke uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which is a promise, if you read it, that was given to Judah and Israel only. And it states that he would write his law on their hearts and forgive their sins and they would be his people and he's going to give them a new covenant. So for Paul to use it here to say even the Gentiles are in on that promise, you got to understand the Jews in the audience will be going, whoa, 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 hold a second, partner. That's our promise. That's a failure for them to read Isaiah and, they, and to remember the Abrahamic covenant. It's a failure to, for them to look forward to what it is that God desires to see in a worship service, which is every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered together, declaring his glory as evidence of his unity in them. That they are in universal need of Christ and universal reception of Christ. Not universalism, but universal in the sense that it is the same for all. No differentiation. And so he says, they show that work of the law that it's written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, being the day of judgment, when according to my gospel, Paul now has taken ownership of the gospel. Is it a different gospel than God's gospel? No. But what he's saying is he's being shaped by it. That's why he's not ashamed of it. He goes on to say, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by what plumb line? Christ Jesus. Is that a different plumb line than the righteousness of God? No, it's the incarnation manifestation of the righteousness of God. So the plumb line is Jesus. All right. Let's do a little work. This is why you hear me say often, one of the best things that you will ever do in your discipleship is take a season. Doesn't have to be the same amount of time for everybody, but to look long at the person and work of Christ. I did it my last year's seminary because apparently I was bored and didn't have something to do. It was, it was foolish for me to do, but it's the best thing I've ever done. 
I mean, it transformed me to look long at the person of Christ. It is, it, you can't walk away unchanged. So let me ask you, what's actually the most destructive force against the church in the world, according to Scripture? Is it, is it governance? CRT? No. <laughs> You'd think so, but no. Is it governance? No. Is it culture, according to Scripture? Nope. Where is the most destructive force residing as far as the church is concerned? Right here. It's us. Now, that sounds like bad news. But no, we've been invited into the work, and so the church can only be destroyed from within. You can't destroy the church from without. I've been reading the minor prophets, and so should you. The forces that come from without are meant, they, they are a pittance. They pale in comparison to the sovereign Lord our God who reigns. Remember Psalm 2. They rage needlessly such that God laughs. Now, did I just say that it, Politics don't matter and culture doesn't matter and you don't need to worry about any of these things. No, that's not what I said. You do need to worry about them for missional evangelistic purposes, not for safety and security purposes. What you need fear is what is lurking in your own heart that you are not bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. That should trouble you if you are arrogant in any way, shape, or form. You need to work on that because that is a destructive force, is it not? If in some way, shape, or form, you think you are better than somebody else, that is a destructive force, and the church cannot grow with that lurking in its midst. If you are failing to show the fruit of the Spirit, that's a destructive force. If you care more about your opinion than the unity of the church, if you are willing to fight needlessly, now I didn't just say you can't critique, no. If you're going to critique, what should be the goal? Unity. If you're going to critique, what should be the goal? The exaltation of Jesus, not preference. Not your own thing. And so if we don't recognize that the most destructive force in all the world, because again, where's judgment begin and why? Well, it begins in the house of the Lord. Why? Because that's where the problem is. Now, I've given y'all a number of challenges thus far in Romans, and so far, nobody's taken me up on it. And so I, I'm going to have to lower the bar, apparently, uh, and, and throw something at you to get you to come and, and, and try to wrestle at the office. Metaphorically, don't want to wrestle in person. Uh, so do me a favor. I want you to find me where Jesus critiques the local governance in any of the red letters. Or culture. Show me where he critiques anything outside the church. I see most of you are like, man, these challenges aren't really challenges. This is trash. Can't even fight about this stuff. So, so let me ask you this. If Jesus is the plumb line and his red letters do not, or even the other people who quote him, do not contain these these excoriating critiques of the Roman government and culture, which if you know anything about it, is there a more apt governance and cultural circumstance that could have been critiqued than Rome? And yet he doesn't. 
Where were his harshest words reserved for? Whom? Those inside the church. Now, I'm not saying, all right, so let's fight. No, no, no. Why did he say what he said to the Pharisees? To draw them together, to bring them together in unity, to make them more biblical, to make them look more like him, to actually keep the law. How did he treat sinners? Is where it gets tricky, doesn't it? The woman at the well, you remember? He said, listen, five husbands, ten husbands, who cares? Hey, I just want you to be happy, sweetheart. And whatever it takes, I'm the, uh, the, the, the well of everlasting water. You ain't got to worry about sin no more because you can do whatever you want because I'm whatever. I, I'll, I'll just love you. Is that what he said? The woman who was caught in adultery, which interestingly, by the way, where was the guy? Because the law says you got to get them both. Maybe she was scrappy and fought real hard. It took all of them to carry her, and the guy got away. Maybe. But I would posture they didn't care about the law. And remember what, what Jesus said to her, how Jesus said, hey, who cares? Nobody's here to accuse you. You can keep doing what you're doing. Run through any man in this town you want. Is that what he said? No, he said, go. And sin no more. He didn't call her to perfection, but what he was saying to her is sin matters. It separates you and it'll kill you. And I love you and I don't want you to do that. So I don't want any of you to let Satan twist anything of what I just said. That Hey, Cameron's up there saying that, that uh, uh, politics don't matter and culture don't matter. And, 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 you know, we need to be just mean to church people. And let sinners just run around and do whatever they want. If you heard that message, make an appointment. We need to talk. But what I am saying is this, is just like I've said before, Jesus took sin the most seriously of any human ever being on the planet. We see it in the table, do we not? He was willing to die for our sins. He knew the cost. He knew what it's going to do. He knows what it's going to do to us, which is why he calls us to keep the law after we've been redeemed, to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as an ongoing expression of his particular character in this world, which is why he calls us to be forbearing and patient and kind with sinners. Why? Who does that describe? That's how God does it. Now, he also is just, is he not? There will come a day. And he's, he's already been victorious. But are we the church, the instruments of condemnation and judgment? Are we ambassadors of reconciliation? So look like Jesus, who already has judgment taken care of. He don't need us to help him on that. We do need to make sure people understand it. We do need to make sure that it's proclaimed so that sin doesn't not get taken seriously, but to do so in a way that is a hospitable invitation to people to come into a family that will love them like Jesus does. Which... Is complex, is it not? Which is why the church is a very dangerous place, actually. And we do well to recognize that. Not in a suspicious, cynical way, but in a way that means we are handling it with great care. That we would not just forsake each other so easily and quickly and quit on each other so fast, but instead would fight toward one another and for one another and exalt Jesus in so doing. And so Paul is saying to them here, the law was never intended to save you. The law actually is intended to display God's character in the world. And we would do well to remember that. 
And we would do well that anytime we see it in God's word, we would not be afraid of what it may ask of us. It's going to ask us to love God, which, by the way, isn't easy, is it? Because his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. How many times have you wanted to roll up and do what you wanted to do, and you could feel the Spirit pressing on you, saying, this does not look like Jesus. Get that ash out of your mouth. You cannot strike with a wicked fist. Oh, but Lord, I'm justified. No, you're not. You're not that instrument. Loving people is easy, right? Loving our neighbors, dealing with them when they, when they don't think like us, when they don't act like us, when they don't look like us, when they don't sing songs the same style, when they don't think that safety and security is the most important thing in all of the world. People are hard to love, and it's okay to admit that, and which is why we need each other. It's why we need to be in conversation about these things instead of hiding in plain view. Every parent in this room knows how hard it is to love your neighbor. I got news for you. It doesn't stop just because they leave the house. And how many of us parents would, could use a little wisdom from another parent who's suffering or has been through it? But how many of us are scared to death to let anybody know? robbing ourselves of one of the greatest displays of God's law, which is neighbors loving neighbors and giving away wisdom and helping each other out and praying for each other and exalting Jesus to each other. So this is what Paul is calling for them to see is, no, you got more that unifies you than separates you, and I'm going to take it from you brick by brick for your good. May he do the same for us. Listen to what Michael Williams says about the law. This book I would commend to you is called Far as the Curse is Found. It's biblical theology. It's not the hardest book you ever read, and it's not the easiest, but it's good. And it'll help you put together some things that, that maybe you've kind of left disparate and unconnected to redemptive history. But his discussion of the law is one of the finest I have ever seen. Uh, and this is indicative of that. The law was never intended to be a means of earning salvation. Your challenge is find me the passage where it says that the law is a means of earning your salvation and it not be a misquote by a Jew. It's going to be hard for you to do because that was never the intent of the law. But he goes on, rather God gave it to guide Israel in living in a way that would please their redeemer. Far from setting aside the promise of grace, the law was given to those who had been saved by grace in order to show them how to live in that grace. Remember, the law was given to those who were called out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and were defended by God and set up by God. So they were already loved by God. And so this was a way in which for them to live in that grace, and the same is true for us. And praise be to God, we can eat shrimp. And some of the other stuff that was a distinguishing marker for them as a nation set apart is no longer needed for us. We've got Jesus. Nobody's confused about polyester or shellfish. And he goes on. Thus, Sinai does not bring fresh bondage, but rather proof that the old bondage had been broken. Think about how crazy it would be for him to set them free from Pharaoh only to enshackle and ensnare them worse than what they had. 
You can see their misunderstanding of the law in the moments where they're like, hey, we had it better in Egypt. So a lot of times people don't understand freedom. They would rather have slavery of some kind, an oppressor, somebody holding them down or showing them the smaller regions in which they can live. It's more difficult when you're set free. And the law grants you great access to the Lord our God and great ways in which to love one another. He says, in fact, we can speak of the law as a further act of grace, a gift of God's people that serves his covenantal and gracious purposes. Thus, the call of the law is to translate God's grace into action. Now, for those of you who are sitting in here going, I don't, I don't think that's right. Okay. Well, it is on you to find in Scripture where that is not the case. Now, you may say, wasn't Paul going to say a little bit later on that the law actually shows our need for Jesus? Yes, because our breaking of it. And praise be to God, the breaking of the law doesn't render you immediately out. That is God's mercy, do you understand? What if every time you failed to love God and love the neighbor, your neighbor, the ground opened up and you were swallowed? I would not suggest the church would grow very much. Praise be to God that it does expose our need and then provides for that need. That's what this table shows us. The law has not been abrogated or taken away, but instead has been made clear in Christ and then imputed to us. We now can be pleasing to the Lord. Not make him love us more, but are able to come boldly before him, to be able to, as we say in the benediction, stand before him at peace in the grace that he has given to us. It is a fallacy to say that grace sets us free to behave unlike God. Think about that for a second. His mercy is not so you could look less like him. It's so that you actually could look more like him, bear the image of Christ. And notice who's the plumb line. We are judged by Christ, and we should look to him and understand him. So what role does God's law play in our salvation? Zero in justification. You may say, well, wait a second. Now, didn't he say they'd be justified by the law in the passage you just read, you heretic? Well, again, just as with other words, context matters. He's not saying justified in terms of saved. He's saying proven in terms of evidence. It's different than justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. So it plays zero part in justification except to expose our need, which is a pretty big deal, actually. But where it becomes useful to us as a means, further means of grace or an instrument to us is in our sanctification, in our discipleship, in our growth. It is helpful for us to not take the Lord's name in vain. You, you do know that's not stubbing your toe and cussing, right? That to take the Lord's name in vain is to say you are something you are not or to live contrary to what you say you are. That's a bigger deal than we've given it credit for. To have no other gods before him? What does that look like? Well, check your idols. What's on par with him? What wins most of the time when you're prioritized, not busy, prioritized? There your idols lie. And then loving our neighbors. 
What a gift it is that we know we are called to forgive. How many of you obey the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, where it says, if you know somebody's got a problem with you, you go and make it right before you offer anything in worship. How many of you would say, no, 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 if Josh has a problem with me, that's that fool's fault. That's Matthew 18. Well, you, but you skipped a lot of chapters. See, the reason that those two bookends are there is so that somehow, some way, we would make reconciliation. Josh and I don't have a problem, by the way. This isn't some sort of like, I'm working it out live type deal. <clears throat> or Susan. Any, anybody on that row? But so that Josh and I both would recognize the gravity of the necessity for reconciliation and forgiveness. Is that easy? Because some of y'all, and I don't know, have a problem with somebody else in this room. And I'm wondering if you're going to take and make that right before we come to the table. Do we take that seriously? And you may say, but ah, grace, man, we'll just, it's, it all works. I don't worry about it. Really? Do you remember the most destructive powers in the church, not out? That's why this is so important. So the law matters to those of us who are redeemed. And then what makes Jesus the true plumb line of our relationship to God? Well, he, he lived the perfect life. He was sinless. He completed, he was the yes and the amen to all God's promises and covenants. And that's what we get to celebrate in this table this morning. What a gift that after hearing about all this stuff about law, we see the fulfillment of the law in Christ. And then that being imputed to us, we get to be nourished by what he did for us. That as we come to the table, we come to the table as people who readily admit our great need for him. That we recognize that just as the disciples were sitting with him in, in, in that meal and not knowing exactly all of what was going on, he granted them something that would help them to always remember his love for them and his redemption of them because he knew they were about to go which way. What was about to happen to those poor disciples? They were going to rush out into the world and get it way wrong for a bit. What a gift that he was saying to them, that is not the end of your story. Lean into the gospel. Remember who I am, how I display God's character. Remember the true law, which is Christ. The greatest display of loving of God and loving a neighbor we would ever see, that's this table. Remember what he said. Jonathan, you can go back to the table. Remember what he said. To them, when he grabbed the bread, he said, listen, this is my body given for you. Meaning it was a gift to them because it was going to take away the shame and guilt of their sin and their fear of God's wrath. What a gift to be free of that kind of stuff so that we could confess our sins to one another. That we could bear fruits in keeping with repentance without fear. Why do we as Christians hide our sin when it is so exposed and so been dealt with? Why are we afraid for people to know we are not perfect? Can we just get over that? I know, you know, we know. And let us be free because of Christ's body given for us. And then as the meal went on, it got even better. He grabbed the cup and he said, this this is my blood poured out for you. The blood of the new covenant, the forgiveness of your sins. And essentially he was saying, you are going to be filled with the power of the spirit and my resurrection power. 
you are going to be able to walk in newness of life. You now can be pleasing to the Lord. Fear not, frail flock. For I have given all that you need in order to please the Lord our God. Take and eat, take and drink. So, if you are a Christian, meaning you recognize your need for Jesus, like you understood that you're a sinner and that there is no differentiation, there's nothing that can make you better than any other person, that need is all across the board, and that Christ is the only answer to that need because of God's grace and your submission and faith, if that's you, you get to take and eat at this table. If that's not you, if for some reason you think that, that, that you're better than somebody else by virtue of your unwillingness to forgive them and pursue that reconciliation, you do know that that's a way in which we display our arrogance, right? If I'm unwilling to pursue you for reconciliation, it means I think I'm better than you. Well, that's a suppressing of the truth, and that ain't good. That needs to be taken seriously because that little fox will spoil a great vineyard. And so if that's you, and you don't know, or you don't know Jesus, either of those, you, you should not take and eat. Get it right. We're going to have communion again soon. I'd rather you not eat in some way that makes you think you're something you're not, that can be destructive to you. And so when you receive the cup and the bread, I want you to hold and we'll all take together as family. Now, if you want the, the good bread and the juice, hold out two hands. If you want the communion MRE, hold out one hand. Based on what you hold out is what you will get. Uh, and then uh, as far as rows are concerned, we'll break at the lighteners. So from lighteners forward, wave your hands, lighteners. Not everybody knows who you are. Jazz hands, Mike. That was great. Uh, from the lighteners forward, you'll come to me. After that, uh, nappers back, you'll go to Jonathan. And you come as you, you feel led. Uh, but, uh, but we want to be a people who are, are, use the means of grace to be nourished and built up uh, and, and are able to be doers of the law, not just hearers of the law, but doing so as redeemed in Christ, not as a means to make God love us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the plumb line. Thank you that he is the fulfillment of the law. Every promise is yes and amen in him. And thank you that we can now be pleasing to you. And thank you that we have a guide. We can see how to love you and love our neighbors in and through the person and work of Christ. Would you form us more into his image? Would you use this table, these elements and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our heart a little bit more, to nourish us to do what you've called us to do for the life of the world. In Christ's name, amen.